Production support comes from Closets 2, providing organized and expanded closet and storage space for home, office, and garage using a variety of systems with no major renovations. Closets 2, owned and operated in Bloomington, 332-2233. Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922 with residential and business internet, phone, and security services. Smithville. Local Pride, Global Technology. Information at smithville.net. Mother Bear's Pizza of Bloomington, open daily and offering gourmet pizzas, hot submarine sandwiches, and salads with daily specials. Menu available online at motherbearspizza.com. 332-4495 for delivery. Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Salzberg, editor of the Herald Times in Bloomington, along with co-host Daniel Robison, who's sitting in for Mary Catherine today. And today we're going to talk with Doug Wissing about his experiences reporting for WFIU while embedded with the 119th Indiana Agribusiness Development Team in Afghanistan. You can join the program by calling 855-0811 or 877-285-9348. You can also join the discussion on our website, wfiu.org slash Noon Edition, and you can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. So, Doug, welcome to the program. Thanks. It's hey, great good, to be here. Good to see you. Good to, I'm glad you made it back. All right. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> Daniel, good to see you again today. Um, this project is called Cultivating Afghanistan, the project that you've been working on. Um, how did this come about? Well, it actually came about I, – I was in Mexico and I had run across a Herald Tribune and there was an article about something called an agribusiness development team from the Indiana National Guard in Texas. And it was quite honestly a disturbing story because this particular agribusiness team was off in Afghanistan doing what appeared to be uh, a really deranged project. And so I was standing on a street corner in Mexico kind of almost getting run over as I'm going, what are they doing there? And I noticed in the article that there was an Indiana team that was also going out. And I got back and I got busy doing other things and some weeks went by and one day I went, oh, yeah, that Indiana agribusiness team, what is that? And and so I did some research and finally found a contact at Camp Atterbury, a, a really helpful sergeant. And the sergeant said, well, they're leaving for Afghanistan tomorrow. If you want to talk to them, you've got to get over here today or tomorrow. And I drove over to Camp Atterbury. The next day I had an opening in my schedule. And in my mind was really expecting to hear something akin to what I had read about with the Texas team. And I expected to see some people kind of scurrying around getting ready to go. And instead I was – given extraordinary access to the command team and they talked about things that made so much sense. I was sitting there kind of shaking my head. They were talking about low-tech sustainable uh, programs in Afghanistan, Afghan-specific programs, taking a very long view of things. And I've seen development projects go bad all over the world. I mean there's hulks and skeletons of this stuff everywhere. And they were talking about things much different than that, talking about working with Afghan farmers and they weren't exactly sure what their agenda was going to be because they wanted to collaborate um, with the Afghans and they had uh, a long-term view, a five-year view as opposed to many of our development projects that are in periods of months and then we run away and you know there's no institutional memory. And I – got so intrigued by this group and they were, they were an elite team. They were – there was an inordinate number of commanders on the team, uh, high-ranking officers, a lot of advanced degrees and all the people I met from the specialist on up to the colonels were really extraordinary people. I was, I was really impressed as one can be and now I understand later they were laughing. They were saying, well, yeah, we spent a lot of time talking to you because we were trying to figure out if you could run up mountains with 50 pounds of body armor. <laughs> so, so it was uh, – we were interviewing one another. Mm-hmm. So I, I have to take you back to something you said very early which was about the deranged project in Texas. What was deranged about it? Well, as the AP reported it, the team uh, was attempting to – go into competition with 
the local wheat seed farm that was controlled by the Taliban. And they decided rather than go into what they would call a kinetic fight, a, a firepower um, battle, they would form a competing farm. However, they wanted to set up a wheat seed farm at 10,000 feet in altitude, which from my experience in Tibet is barley areas and maybe there is a wheat seed that flourishes at 10,000 feet. I just didn't know what it was. And most Afghan farmers are raising uh, – their farms are one or two gerbs in dimension, which would be half an acre to an acre and they're feeding eight, ten people. So this team was talking about thousands of acres. They were – later I found out that the AP reporter was not only accurate, was being really kind to them because they were doing things like airlifting in Great, Lake, Great Plains sized combines to an area that's, you know, eight hours by road in an area where literacy is maybe 24 percent maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not exactly like they can leave the instruction manual with virtually no mechanical um, and technical understanding with the exception of guns where the Pashtuns seem to have an extraordinary capacity with armaments. So it's pretty easy to imagine these combines becoming art projects um, in four or five years. Yeah, that was my my skeptical view of it. Mm-hmm. Okay, and and I'm hoping when I go back to Afghanistan in November actually to go visit the Texas team and to see if what has been reported and and what their experience has been to see whether that project maybe did work out. I don't know, but it that was mm-hmm. my. Okay. So so you went to Atterbury. You talked to all these people. They were going to be leaving the next day. When did you leave? I left about um, two or three months later because the determination was – it's a 64-person team. Um, it takes them a while to get there. It typically takes a week or so for them to get to, um, to the base on the Pakistan border. Um, and once they got there, they needed to set up security. They couldn't bring me in until they had things organized and they got their compound outfitted and they made their initial um, forays out into the province to meet with key leaders and to begin to understand the process. So the determination was made that I would hope to get out there in two or three months. And, and of course, to do that, I needed to get things organized here. There needed to be approvals that go all the way to the Pentagon, the whole process of getting that done. Mm-hmm. So you saw there was a perhaps a wrong way to go about doing this kind of mission and then you talked to the, the folks at Atterbury and saw that – you said that they were making sense. So what exactly was it about uh, their mission that uh, won you over so much that you wanted to go over there and, and, uh, and report on it? It appeared to me that war is one of those short powerful words like, like art or mom or God that – relates to something so large we can't get our – we can't grip the whole thing and we have to take it in little shards. We have to get pieces of it to make sense and it seemed that this team, because it was a military team doing a humanitarian project in a very complicated place, dealing with a number of aspects of a society and a culture, it gave us the opportunity to pick up a lot of these little shards that are maybe mirrored shards that give us a piece of it and maybe if we put enough pieces together, you could begin to make sense of what our um, policies are in Afghanistan. So I went off with some sense of the overall strategy and the strategy that's shifted and the, and, you know, the strategy that's gone wrong and the, you know, this um, amorphous thing that keeps shifting around, the Taliban, who the Taliban were, who the Taliban are and through going with this team out into the provinces and dealing with their relationships with um, their other officers, the other part of the war effort and the diplomatic side and the war side, I do have – I can see the big picture through these little pieces. How did they help you get ready to to go over there and how uh, open were they to having you, you know, become part of their team? I can't speak highly enough of that team and their willingness to give me access to things. 
um, they uh, they gave me um, my housing was in one of the barracks with the soldiers, which doesn't seem like that big a deal. Except one day, I went over to the the public relations um, hut where there were some journalists from Fox News that were living in a tent. You know, and, it was, and they were they had them sequestered a half a mile from anybody. And instead of that, I was right with the team. And and so much of what goes on during the mission, everyone is totally focused on their job and you see aspects of what goes on. But then after the mission in the evening, people often sit outside and talk about things and you can get a better sense of both the larger picture and also how they feel about it, how it impacts them on a personal level and how they process information. Because as we know, Soldiers, for the most part, don't talk about their experiences once they get home. Mm-hmm. We're talking today with Doug Wissing, who's a, a, a journalist and author, and he recently spent um, time in Afghanistan with the, an Indiana agribusiness development team uh, and has done a series of, of 15 stories about it for WFIU. If you want to join the program, call us at 855 or 877-285-9348, or you can go to the website to uh, email in a question, fwfiu.org slash noon edition. Um, go back to that first day that you went out with a team. Can you talk a little bit about what that first day was like? Sure. Um, first, it's Central Asia. You're at about five or 6,000 feet. Uh, you're right on the Pakistan border. We're, we're in a province called Host Province, K-H-O-S-T, which is a primarily a Pashtun tribal region. And um, it's very hot, 100, 105 degrees. Uh, because of the security problem, it is among the most violent provinces in Afghanistan. The team has to travel in what are called MRAPs, which are mine-resistant and ambush-protected vehicles, these enormous kind of triceratops-like things that are uh, armored, that have a V-shaped hull to deflect IEDs. And they have to go out in a minimum of four of those. So you you climb up into this thing, you hermetically seal the battle doors, combat seal is the term, and there's um, each one of them has a gunner on top in a turret with either a machine gun or an automatic grenade launcher. You travel with... Um, a large contingent of security soldiers who are everyone is in body armor um, that is so there the soldiers are carrying seventy five hundred pounds worth of body armor helmets blast gear Kevlar gloves you're going into a war zone um, you you leave the base which is a three hundred acre base called uh, forward operating base Salerno that um, has had so many mortar and rocket attacks that its nickname is Rocket City. <laughs> you can – they used to sell baseball caps that said Rocket City but they're not in the PX anymore. I, I think somebody said get that out of here. Um, I was so sad. I wanted one. Uh, and you go out into um, – you kind of leave Little America. There's a – you know, there's a mess hall that's serving American-style food and there's a 24-hour gym and there's a espresso shop and a university uh, – education facility and chapels and mosques and the whole thing. You leave that and you, you go out into Central Asia. You go out, you leave the 21st century and go into aspects of the 13th. Um, it's a primarily a farming region, um, rangeland. So someone asked me what it looked like and the best I could come up with was it sort of looks like New Mexico on Mars. <laughs> um, it's a bowl where you're surrounded by the Hindu Kush. Uh, there are these dun-colored mountains that surround you. Um, you see biblical animals, lounging camels and flocks of hot, uh, fat-tailed sheep, and goats. Uh, primarily wheat is a, is a big uh, crop there. So you see people out scything the wheat and doing that thing, or men in general. Most mm-hmm. women are sequestered. Mm-hmm. Let's talk a little bit about your mindset, you being a civilian going into this war zone, Rocket City, um, wearing the body armor. We just tried it on in the newsroom and it's very heavy and, uh, you know, putting on a helmet and, and going in these 
enormous vehicles down roads that you don't know if there's IEDs on. Talk a little bit about your mindset, getting used to, to that feeling. Um, I, I, the best I could say is when in Rome. You know, my questions would be, have I put this on correctly? Um, because there, there is a shared responsibility. The team is responsible for my security and they're, they take that very seriously. On the other hand, I can contribute to the danger if I don't do the things correctly, if I don't do my part. So um, it's more, you know, you get focused on your job. How is it that we're doing this? How do you put on, the, you know, you're, you're strapped into these vehicles in a really elaborate way. I mean, you, you imagine, I mean, you're just strapped in. You can barely move your head. Um, it's really an elaborate safety system. And uh, you're just trying to figure out how does the, you know, how do your headphones go under the helmet? And I have to say I was cheap and bought a used helmet, which was an old style. And the helmet, you know, now all the communication is through earphones. And it was tough to get the thing under there. And, you know, those, the, the kind of particulars and details, we get, we get lost in our, um, or maybe we find comfort in our routines. So I was focused on taking notes. What are these things? What was the truck banter that went on? I mean, people try to deal with their stress by having funny conversations. They were, you know, many hilarious times as they were as we're rolling along through Afghanistan and they're watching for ambushes and looking for IEDs and you know and sometimes it would be their tension bubbling up you know there was a bridge that you had to go over all the time and it was a great place to plant IEDs and one day as they're looking very carefully for disturbed dirt and trip wires and whatnot one of the one of the drivers, somebody up front, I, over the headspace, or over the, you know, over the speakers, I could hear, I hate this bridge. <laughs> <laughs> I can see that. What was your relationship like with, uh, you know, getting to know uh, these soldiers and, and having them feel comfortable with you in there? Do you think they acted any differently because they knew a journalist was there, you know, scribbling down maybe some of the things they said? And, uh, you know, just you being a civilian – entering their world. Did it take them a while for them to get used to you? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm used to doing um, solitary journalism and pretty much I try and stay as quiet as I can given the fact that you know, I'm a large obtrusive presence. But I, for the most part, try and stay as quiet as I can and it's like any other kind of environment. If, if I can not assert myself too much, people get comfortable and get used to it. And there was a process of shared trust that I like to think went on between us. And, and there were some people when I first showed up insisted that they wanted nothing to do with the journalist. And by the end, a couple of them were coming up to me, well, don't you want to interview me too? <laughs> and I appreciated that. And I think they got to – and I, I told them I wasn't sure what my assessment would be of the mission. I wasn't sure – how it would fit into the larger strategy, but I could tell them I really respected what they were doing and, and I thought they were really given their all. And I, in my mind, I do see it as a worthwhile mission, but subject to a, an awful lot of uh, impingements. Mm -hmm. Well, the, uh, the mission included the ag agribusiness development team, 16 members of that team, and then 35 Hoosier National Guard soldiers who were protecting them according to the data that was on the WFIU website. So uh, how, how did the – I mean the, these members of the uh, agribusiness development team, where did they come from? Were they soldiers too or were they uh, – and they were just expert in this mission? Yeah, the, the concept of the agribusiness development team, um, one, they're all soldiers. They're all Indiana National Guardsmen. The uh, – since about 2002, we have had teams in Afghanistan called provincial reconstruction teams and those are comprised of both military to provide the security, pretty large teams, 80, 85 soldiers and then uh, civilians from the State Department, USDA and USAID. I may be forgetting one. 
So primarily military with a few little civilian – not little, but a few civilian specialists. Some were little. Um, <laughs> the, and they would go out and do various kinds of development projects. And the, the theory there was these places were too violent. The security was so bad that you couldn't bring in humanitarian aid groups that would be in other places, the Red Cross. Now, uh, NGOs will talk differently about that. They have a different viewpoint, but that is the military strategy. And that's been the way it's been up to about 2008 when the Indiana – the National Guard in general, the, um, the general in charge of the National Guard came up with a concept. He was from Missouri. He was from a farm background. He realized that the National Guards, the state National Guards, had this enormous number of people who had agricultural backgrounds. And so the concept was is to set up a specialized team that would be a development team to do humanitarian work in these very violent places. And the, the security and the development side would all be under one military command. But these were all military mm -hmm. people uh, because one of the problems with the provincial reconstruction teams is there was a tension between the civilian people and the military people and, and they would fight about should we go to this village and should we not? And so it, right. it was a coherent thing, command. That's the theory behind it. So now that – as I understand it, there's about 12 of them. Indiana was one of the very first ones that went out there. I think they were the third or fourth. Mm -hmm. All right. We have our first phone call of the day and it's from Wayne. Wayne? Hi. I assume any, any agribusiness mission to Afghanistan would be to get the Afghani farmers to replace uh, opium poppies with some type, of a, um, some type of a cash crop that they can grow. How are you doing and what's the cash crop? Well, host province actually has almost no opium production that I could find. It doesn't show up on any of the material that I've seen, nor did I see any poppy fields, nor did I find anyone who said they had ever seen anything relating to opium. Most of the opium production is further south where you do have large productions and, and some up north. But it's it's not really a crop that happens in host province. So that is not such an issue there, which also has some funny impacts uh, because in a lot of Afghanistan where there is opium production, we um, provide free fertilizer and seed, which of course the farmers in host knew about. And in some cases, particularly um, Taliban-ridden sections, I was in meetings with – people who were insisting they needed free fertilizer and seed and, and the uh, ADT kept repeating they didn't give free seed. They did training and they helped with more uh, Afghan-specific projects. And at one point I can remember a sub-governor getting very frustrated because he wasn't going to get his free seed and fertilizer and conjecturing that maybe they should start uh, poppy production. <laughs> so what crop were you uh, – were they growing there? Um, I saw a lot of wheat. A lot of wheat. Mm -hmm. okay. A lot of animal husbandry stuff. Mm -hmm. All right. 855-0811-877-285-9348. And the website is wfiu.org slash noon edition. This would be, I think, a good time to take a break while we don't have anybody on the phone. You're listening to uh, Noon Edition and we have Doug Wissing who's spent uh, a month in Afghanistan and we're talking about his uh, experiences there. We'll be right back. Listening to Noon Edition on member-supported WFIU. Production support comes from Closets 2, Smithville Telephone Information at smithville.net, and from Mother Bear's Pizza at motherbearspizza.com. You can take WFIU programs with you by downloading our podcasts. Podcasting is a convenient and easy way to download audio files directly to your computer, iPod, or portable player. You can download podcasts of full-length programs like Noon Edition, Ask the Mayor, and Harmonia, or short features like Kinsey Confidential, the Ether Game Musical Mini Quiz, as well as movie, play, and opera reviews. Find out more by going to our website, wfiu.org. And have you heard WFIU's news features? 
On Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays, the WFIU News Team brings you expanded and in-depth reports on topics affecting South Central Indiana. Listen at 8.33 a.m. and 5.45 p.m. every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday to catch that day's feature. If you miss one, that's okay. They're archived on our website, WFIU.org, and the best features from each week can be heard Saturday mornings at 7.45. Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg from the Herald Times along with Daniel Robison from WFIU. And uh, you may have been hearing uh, the reports recently on WFIU from Doug Wissing about his experiences uh, with the Indiana and Indiana Agribusiness Development Team in Afghanistan. We have Doug in the studio with us today and uh, so you can question him yourself if you want. Uh, you can call us at 855-0811 or 877-285-9348 or you can join the discussion on our website, wfiu.org slash noon edition. Uh, Bob mentioned uh, the, the 15 stories yeah. you did for us and uh, uh, I know you've told a, a few here around the office but what, what are some of the stories you've been uh, – maybe a story that you've been telling to almost everybody, maybe your friends or family that I guess hasn't shown up in the reports that I guess is appropriate? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, some of those things. Are, they are soldiers after all. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think on one of the things that people are often interested in is, uh, relates to the status of women in Afghanistan and they're curious about that. And I had spent time in the uh, Pashtun tribal region in Pakistan a number of years ago in Peshawar and some of those areas and thought I had some understanding of that situation where you saw a lot of women in burqas and um, very seldom saw uh, a woman without a scarf. Um, completely clothed and I realized very quickly in Host Province, which would be right across the border from that area where I was, is that was sort of like Manhattan in contrast to the way Host Province is in terms of it being an extremely fundamentalist place. And so you – rather than seeing women, lots of women in burqas, you seldom saw women at all. They were uh, hidden away in the houses. And um, that was – it took a little while for me to get my head around that and the way that the Pashtuns think about it as um, women being spiritual creatures and you protect them and things of that nature. And sometimes the Pashtun men would talk about um, the way they saw our relationships with women and how negative they see it. So it was interesting to see it from the two different viewpoints. But one day we were up in a village and um, we had arrived. If you can sort of envision these um, medieval walled compounds um, where the men will come down to meet with you often under a a shade tree that's at the the edge of the the village. And and I'm always impressed that the Pashtuns have um, so much confidence and and so much courage to – you know, we show up in these enormous – war vehicles with 30 men jumping out and most of the time men. There are four female soldiers with the ADT um, jumping out and uh, forming a defense perimeter and there's guns pointed at the village and it's not unusual for there to be an attack helicopter circling overhead to provide uh, further security. And the Pashtun men will come out and have a discussion and, and the ADT will then explain what they want to do. They want to build a series of check dams or they want to set up a, an animal husbandry training project. And they're, they're very open and wonderful and there's good interpreters and the, the village men come down and they talk about it. And often there's an assessment that goes on and, and the village men get excited about the possibilities. They know what this can mean to them. And they also uh, – I mean one of the things that comes up in virtually every – news commentary about Afghanistan is the government is extraordinarily corrupt. And so at some point in the interchange with the villagers and the ADT, they'll say, well, if you're going to do this, you need to come here and do it here. Don't give the money to the government because we never see it. The people come and and it's just so uh, predictable that at some point there's going to be that discussion. And they get get excited and, and they've been burned a lot. And you can see them looking at, at the Hoosier soldiers and going, Maybe this time. You know, and, and there was this one village leader and he, he like wants to take us up. I can't re- recall exactly where we're going. We needed to go through the village. 
and he needed to take his places. And so you're going through sort of a series of, of gates that's all kind of an adobe village. And he and we get to this one wall that had a gate in it, and he suddenly turns to us. We're following behind him, this clot of soldiers. And he says, wait here a minute. And, and I have to say that the Muslims think dogs are very dirty creatures, and they're often dogs in these villages, but they're sort of curs. They don't look at all like our dogs, and they must serve a scavenger function or a watchdog function. I'm not sure exactly what, but you've got to watch out for them. They're really like curs, and you've got to keep your eye out. And the... Um, the Afghan leader is going forward, suddenly stops at the gate, turns around, tells us to wait for a second and he says, wait, I'm going to go look for dogs and women. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a little unusual. Yes. <laughs> was it a tough for you to become culturally proficient over there? Not only you know, in Afghanistan and the, in the Afghan cultures but uh, – also in the military culture. I mean you're, you're, you're someone from Indiana and, and you know, you've, I guess you've never been in the military before and I don't know. You obviously haven't lived in Afghanistan most of your life. So how do you learn these two very different things at the same time? The soldiers asked me the same thing and, and I just said, look, you're just another weird tribe to me. <laughs> I'm just trying to figure out your language. One day – I mean there are so many acronyms in military talk and sometimes they don't even know what the acronym means. You know, It's just like – what that thing is. And about three weeks into it, I was sitting with a couple of soldiers and they had a conversation that went on for two or three paragraphs and I got so giddy because I realized I understood the entire <laughs> three paragraphs. I didn't have to go, what's SERP? What's, you know, ARP? What's, you know, that endless list of uh, I got it. It was like learning a new language. And they, you know, I just, I was an anthropologist is sort of the way I explained it. And I would look like in any kind of work you're doing, you look for an intelligent person who can kind of look at things in their peripheral vision, things they take for granted, but they can step back a little bit and say, oh, well, we do that. Because a lot of times those are all invisible. I think it's worth noting that, Doug, this was far from your first uh, visit to a uh, culture that was different from what you were used to. Could you review a little bit some of the other trips that you've taken? I, I, I refer to it as a trip, but you know, it missions. Was a, it or was whatever. a trip. Yes. <laughs> uh, well, I've done a fair amount of research in Central Asia, and with a particular focus on Tibet, because I I did a, a book um, called Pioneer in Tibet. It was about a Hoosier who had really uh, introduced Tibet to America early in the 20th century and had lived in a very wild part of Tibet from 1904 to 1922. So I spent a fair amount of time in Tibet and um, and just have a real love of Central Asia in a way that I'm, you know, I never can quite fathom. How do these things happen? Yeah. I'm not sure. <laughs> All right. Well, we did get an email from someone. To, I'll go ahead and read it to you. This is from Gene. This has nothing to do with the topic you are discussing, but I want to put in a plug for Doug Wissing's book, Pioneer in Tibet, <laughs> an account of Dr. Albert Shelton. It was informative and exciting. I highly recommend it. So you, you have at least one fan. That's very nice. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. All right. Again, our phone numbers are 855-0811-877-285-9348. And you can join us on the program, wfiu.org slash noon edition. You can also follow us on Twitter at noon edition if you want to try that. Um, I wanted to ask about uh, you know the I guess the the whole political scene over there and what kind of things you picked up. You know we hear about you know the government in Afghanistan. We hear about the Taliban and we hear about the conflict between the two. Um, what can you sort of tell us about you know life on on the ground? In Afghanistan, did were you? Um, did you see people who are in the Taliban? Was that an issue for you on a regular basis? Well, I I think we have to. I sort of view it as this clash between two utopian societies, ours and the Taliban's. Um, both of us have fairly uh, unrealistic views of the world, and. Then there's the mass of Afghan people who are vacillating. On the one hand, they don't want to be dominated by Western society. They see the drawbacks to that. On the other, most Afghan people found life under the Taliban to be pretty restrictive. But they're not sure who's going to win. We have to remember we bolted after uh, the Soviets left. We were, we were dumping a billion bucks into Afghanistan 
for decades. We pitched in half. The Saudis pitched in half. And when the Soviets left, we just pulled the plug and went away and the country went into anarchy. Um, that's how the Taliban came to take power because it would, became a totally chaotic country and people welcomed the Taliban. They brought, they brought order in, somewhat draconian order, but they did bring order in. Um, then post 9-11 when we invaded, we came, we made a lot of assertions and for the most part we got deflected by Iraq. And we bolted again in 2005 just as the, the insurgency was reconstituting itself, what was, what's called a neo-Taliban, a, a new iteration of, of the Taliban. Just as it was coming together in 2005 and things were getting um, violent again, we pulled 2,500 soldiers out and things really went crazy. The, the level of violence today compared to 2005 is on some enormous magnitude, five, six hundred percent more violent incidents. And so when we show up again and say, oh, this time for sure, they're not quite sure. And like it, I, it's pretty easy to imagine ourselves in that position. Mm -hmm. There's millions and millions and millions of Afghans that are sitting on the fence. Um, most families have people in their family that are in the Taliban. Most of the district governors have relationships with the Taliban. Um, I'm thinking of one meeting in particular where it, it seemed pretty obvious to me the sub-governor was a Taliban. Um, that's just the environment we're working in right now. Uh, the national government doesn't really have much outreach into the rural areas. It's still primarily focused in the larger cities. Um, and it's, it's a transitional point right now. Mm -hmm. How do you feel like the mission you were a part of it relates to uh, where do you think the, the United States, at least its effort, needs to go to bring a resolution to all this? Well, the, where the team fits in, in in the way I think about it is um, increasingly – the doctrines of counterinsurgency are dominating our strategic thinking in Afghanistan. And that includes a real long-term view of things. It includes an understanding of um, the limits of power, particularly kinetic power, firepower. Um, it puts a while, – while combat operations are a major part of counterinsurgency, they – uh, soldier, commander after commander will say it's not it, – while it may take the bulk of my time right now, it's not the most important fight. Development is the most important fight, long-term sustainable development. And so where the ADT fits into that precisely is they've taken a long-term view of this. They're trying to do um, culturally appropriate development. They're wanting to partner with Afghans and um, – they're, they're pretty culturally savvy and, and as a best we can be at this early stage where we're basically kind of blundering idiots. We don't understand the nuances of culture and, but we're, we're learning more and more. You can, you can see a pretty sharp learning curve. We have to go back to the phones now. We have a call and it's Bruce. Bruce? Yes, I'd just like uh, the uh, guests – opinion about the need for international law, looking at the big picture, and every so often this comes up, and I have the feeling that uh, in the absence of an international justice tribunal with, uh, like, backup, uh, being able to back up its uh, juris back up its decisions with military, international military force, when nations intervene in other nations, it becomes one nation against the other rather than an international law enforcement matter. Uh, so I think uh, these problems in Iraq and uh, Afghanistan probably could have been prevented if we had in place what we desperately need in the world, and that is an international justice tribunal, which would unite uh, nations of the world against... Uh, rogue states, and to intervene in places like Rwanda to prevent 
uh, massive human rights violations and genocide. All right, Doug, reaction? Well, it makes sense to me to have multilateral groups as opposed to unilateral groups as has been our experience over the last eight or nine years. Um, and the more that we build consensus with whatever venues we can put together generally makes more sense to me. I think going it alone is puts us at risk. Mm-hmm. All right. I think that's uh, – I think the caller is still on the line. Yeah. Any, any reaction, Bruce? All right. OK. Thanks a lot. I guess that's it. We had a little technical uh, glitch there. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to ask about – you know, this is uh, – you've referred to the, the violent area that you were in. You know, what kind of violence did you see? Did you uh, – were you, you know, face-to-face with danger? How, how difficult was the situation uh, while you were well, there? Well, you, you have to – one, the security teams do an extraordinary job. But we hit an IED in one of the convoys um, and, and then discovered there was another IED just ahead. So we had to go through this really elaborate process and it then triggers a whole um, security response that you have to – go through that involves a lot of coordination. There's an enormous amount of coordination that goes on between various arms of, of, the, uh, of the maneuver teams out there. Um, and it's just the dangers of an IED that a couple of weeks later, we end, you end up having to go through these um, circuitous routes and using dry ro- uh, riverbeds, wadis as your roads because – the lanes and the roads become so heavily mined, you're, and another team, another PRT team, literally used our same route and hit an IED so big it ruptured the um, even the MRAP and the five people inside were uh, sustained injuries. You know, there was a man that was killed by in an ambush, uh, a gunner in an MRAP that was down the road where we were just days before um, we do we went to bazaars where I met an Afghan army officer who had been in the same bazaar two or three days before somebody got out of his SUV forgot left the door open so he walked in and threw a grenade and he managed to throw himself out of the the vehicle before it went off but I saw the SUV it's pretty graphic reminder that you need to close the doors in Taliban areas um, there were rocket attacks and mortar attacks on the base and that was pretty, you know, not an uncommon situation. It's just life in a war zone. Mm-hmm. What's the morale like among soldiers over there who are, uh, you know, carrying out this mission, the agribusiness mission, and, and to, to know that, that death is around them, that this stuff happens? Uh, what's the morale of soldiers? I thought extraordinarily high. I don't have a baseline to talk about it, but I thought the team was – really cohesive in their positive viewpoints and everybody grouses sometimes or they wouldn't be human. But in general, they really believed in their commanders and the commanders um, really believed in their men It was and women. Uh, it was a very positive team. Now, you were there for a month and I know I, I would assume that uh, a month there would, would be quite a bonding experience that you would get to know these people pretty well and, and feel um, pretty close to them. What was, what was it like for you when it was time to leave? Well, it, yeah, I had formed a bond. I mean that small group dynamic is a universal I guess and uh, I appreciated everything they had done for me and opening the doors they did and sharing their feelings about things. Um, so it was – yeah, it was, it was emotional. They had a formation for me when I left and they gave me a beautiful flag and, and uh, some great mementos. They did a – you know, it was wonderful of them. They all lined up then to hug me and tell me to be safe, to get getting back because just even returning is tough. There's There's things happen all the time. You fly out and then there's – you're on the ground in various – so it's, it's Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. How do you walk the line between you know, reporting on something which includes you know, possibly being critical and publishing you know, un- uncomfortable details about uh, these people who are also protecting you in, these, in this life and death situation and also forming a bond with these people because it's such a you – know, I don't know – situation to where you know, your, your safety is at risk. So 
How did you walk that line? Probably the same way they did. We all had to do our jobs. And I would say I'm reporting on this team and from everything I see, this seems like a mission that makes sense to me. But if you guys screw up, I'm going to have – I'll report that too. That's just what we're doing. There are certain aspects of what goes on uh, in that particular battle space that I did report on. And one of the segments was on a village called Alidaya where our special forces or coalition forces butchered innocent civilians including a four-day-old baby. Um, that's part of the picture too. If things go bad, I'm going to – that's what I'll be talking about too. Um, on the other hand, they give me a lot of access but there's also doors that need to close because I'm a journalist and they need to do their work behind a closed door. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. Now, you, I know you, know, you were there for a month so I'm sure there are lots of different events that stand out. But can you pick out a, you know, like maybe one particular day that you're just never going to forget because of some things that you saw or some things – some people that you met? Boy, there would be a bunch of those. Mm-hmm. Just, were, just choose one then. Well, uh, there was one incident that I actually didn't see, but I thought it encapsulated so many issues. Um, I'm sure if you've been following the news, you see constant references to us standing up the Afghan National Army and the Afghan National Police. And we are certainly putting a lot of resources into that. And I mean billions and billions and billions of dollars and we're talking about uh, standing up those forces to take over security issues in Afghanistan. And on the ground, the Afghan National Police are most notoriously corrupt. Um, the Afghan National Army is getting better and there really wasn't one up to whatever, 2004. I'm not exactly sure of the year. So we're starting from scratch but they're not very well trained and they're not very well equipped and um, things can go wrong. And then on the other hand, we're dealing with rampant corruption. And the incident that was related to me by two or three people related to a dam and a dam uh, inauguration ceremony where all these dignitaries came. It was a pretty big dam and um, there was a security force of Afghans that were surrounding all these dignitaries and soldiers had told me a number of times, you want to keep something solid between you and the Afghan National Army guys because they tend to shoot themselves with a fair amount of regularity. And I guess at this damn ceremony, uh, a soldier, an Afghan, that was almost immediately behind the governor as I understand it, accidentally discharged his weapon <laughs> into, the, into the dam and shot himself in the foot as I recall. And of course, that's like indicative of, well, that's where we are today in terms of the development of these people, this organization and being able to depend on it to fend off mm-hmm. uh, dangers. The worst part then was after that, they looked down and looked at where the bullet had gone and they realized that the bullet had penetrated new concrete three inches, which basically indicates that that dam, you wouldn't want to live downstream from that dam. It was so full of sand. And the concrete was so poor, it should have – I mean they were going, God, there were, you know, might have been all these ricochet injuries. No, the bullet penetrated new concrete three inches. So it seemed to encapsulate both the um, – where we are with the development of the Afghan National Army and the problem of corruption because typically what happens is we come marching in. We say you – know, we have these people who are the development people. They want to do a big project so they can get an advancement in their career. Because the metric that we use is how much money did you spend? So they're in Afghanistan on a very short turnaround time. They hit the ground. They want to find the biggest one. Let's build a $30 million dam. So they, and of course, we're partnering with Afghans. So we go to the um, provincial government and say, well, who should build that? Well, often that tends to be a company owned by a relative of the governor who takes $15 million of it and subcontracts it. Mm-hmm. And the subcontractor then takes $7.5 million and subcontracts it. And we build a $30 million dam with $7.5 million and you can shoot a gun three inches into the dam. (laughs) 
We have about two minutes to go, and I think we have some email, don't we? Well, uh, we do. Um, someone uh, wrote uh, – here, let me get to it here. Uh, Chuck writes, uh, Mr. Wissing just made a comment that most Afghan people, uh, quote, found life under the Taliban to be pretty restrictive. That seems the very mild picture of what has been portrayed by such – by the authors of The Kite Runner and A Thousand Splendid Sons. Will Mr. Wissing please be so kind as to reconcile his statement with the situation as, to set, out, as set out in these books? Um, I would say we have multiple perspectives in the world and that would – I'm passing on what people – you know, the, their perspective to me and I talk to a finite number of people and, well, maybe, uh, and, and I, I think we can also say that Afghans voted with their feet. There were millions of refugees during that period. Well, to wrap things up, uh, over here, it seems to be, there seems to be a lack of curiosity about the war, especially in the last election. I noticed a lot of talking about the war. Presidential candidates just use sound bites about needing to do more. In the last minute we have, what does the public need to know that they don't know about this war? What are some misconceptions do you think we have that uh, maybe need correcting? I, I think there's a lot of coverage of the war and people perhaps aren't choosing to look at some of it. Um, there, there is the issue of our, our mission is to bind the population of Afghanistan to Jeroa, to the government of the Islamic Republic of Afghanistan, the Karzai government focused in um, Kabul. Having said that, that government appears to be pretty corrupt and it's got a, a – a problematic constitution that could stand some fixing and so there's there's like problems almost at every level from the constitutional level down and I think we just have to take a long view of it. There's a lot of stuff to be resolved. All right, Doug. We are out of time. I want to thank you very much for being here. It's been very interesting. For uh, Daniel Robison, producer Ariana Prothero and engineer Mike Pashkash, I'm Bob Zaltzberg. Thanks for listening. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support comes from Closets 2, providing organized and expanded closet and storage space for home, office, and garage using a variety of systems with no major renovations. Closets 2, owned and operated in Bloomington, 332-2233. Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922 with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Mother Bear's Pizza of Bloomington, open daily and offering pizzas, pasta dinners, and wings with daily specials. Menu available online at motherbearspizza.com, 332-4495 for delivery.